So Matthew chapter 5, we're going to cover verses 13 through 20. And if you guys are turning your Bibles, either on your phones or actually in the Bibles. Um, I have my backpack over here, my, my heavy coat. So I am uh, ready to go climb a mountain. After this, we're gonna, I'm leaving. We're going to Nepal. No. We're going to climb Mount Everest. We're just going to get on a plane and go. And uh, hopefully... We'll figure it out along the way. We'll show up. It's a long flight. We got a lot of. We can do all the planning on the plane, I think. Right? Is that how you guys would start off if you guys wanted to go climb the tallest mountain in the world? Just pick up, pack a bag, and I saw this on National Geographic, so I know how to do it, kind of thing. I got need some boots, some gloves, uh, those crampon things that are little, little uh, for your ice ice clamps, things like that. No, you would. You know, you would need people to help you, right? It, take, it costs somewhere around, depending on where you're coming from and where you're going, like from here to the States, it costs anywhere between like forty-five dollars and $100,000 to go climb Mount Everest. All right, it depends on who you're going through, what agency, things like that. What's that? Yeah, to attempt. Right, exactly. That's the thing. It's right. It's, it's to attempt, right? So you may, depending on the weather and everything else, you may not even get there, right? They may say, and, and here's why. You are probably not going to have enough knowledge to make that decision, so you have guides with you, right? So the guides, you can go through an agency and you have people who are mountain climbers who do that all the time, but they rely on people that are called Sherpas, right? So they have the local Nepalese people who live there. They grew up there. They know all about the mountain. They do all the climbing themselves, uh, they get help as well from different agencies. They get all the equipment and everything like that. But they have all the local knowledge of the mountains, of everything that goes on, the weather patterns, everything else, to help help you, hopefully, that you didn't waste $100,000 to go camp out at 17,000, 18,000 feet for a little while and freeze and just drink some tea and then have to come back. Right? So it requires people... To help you, right? We need help, right? So what does this, what do these Sherpas do that is so important? So one thing I found was that uh, this, this, they did an article. So British mountaineer Kenton Cool, who has climbed Everest 11 times, he explains, the Sherpas are so important. For one, they're the local people. They know the culture, they know the area, and they know the other people. And so likewise, those of us in this church, we're the locals, right? We know the culture of Christianity, and we know our culture as Red Oaks Baptist Church as well, right? We, we know what goes on, what's normal. So when we have new people, visitors coming in, we can help point them in the right direction and say, this is what we do, this is how you do it, here's where everything's at. Right? We try to bring them into the church so they can know what's going on, right? We, we bring them in and teach them, we guide them how the church operates. And more importantly, how Christianity operates, Right, so we may be getting people eventually that have no idea, they've never come to a church, they don't know anything about God, and for whatever reason they felt compelled to come, and now they want to learn about what it means to be a Christian. And so we as Christians have the utmost responsibility, we're going to talk, that Jesus is going to talk about here in verses 17 through 20 later, we have the utmost responsibility to teach them what it means to actually be a Christian and live a Christian life. And so that's why I titled this, right, The Disciples in the World, because we have a duty set forth by Christ to tell people about him and how to actually be a Christian. So let's go ahead and we're going to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. 
And then we'll explain it. I have the two points there that uh, the disciples are the guide or to guide the way. And they're also the disciples are to teach the way to God. Right. That's the two breakdowns that I, that I came up with. So let's go ahead and read Matthew chapter five, verse, starting at verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. This is Jesus, Jesus talking. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand and gives it light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. In verse 17, he goes on, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. And so those are the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. So here is the main idea, the big, the principle for this one, is that disciples are called to show others the way to God. Right? We are called to show other people what it means to follow God, what it means to get there, what it means to give your life over to, to Christ and become a follower. Right? When the church started off, when we read Acts, the church was called the way. Right? And that's what there's now even some other churches in modern day have picked up on that, that phrasing. But that was what the church was called before they were called Christians. They were just called the way. And so that's what our job, right? We are the Sherpas for those people who have been called to the mountain of God. And again, we have two jobs. We have, we have to guide them and to teach them. It may sound similar, but we're going to look at how it, how it differs. So verse 12, we covered last year or last week at the kind of the end of the Sermon on the Mount, right? He says, Jesus says, be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So that's a little bit of a transition before he gets into talking about what is now the expectations of a disciple, right? Because he's sitting on this mountaintop, he's sitting somewhere, and he's talking to this huge crowd of people. Some people who is, who's already called, you know, Peter and James and John, Andrew, his first disciples, or what we call as the apostles. Other people would become disciples. Other people would just listen and go, okay, that's nice, and then... Go on their merry way somewhere else, right? We don't know if everybody became a Christian. Probably not, right? So we have this huge crowd sitting there, and he's talking. So he's like, if you want to be a disciple of mine, here's what I expect of you. And so he tells the disciples, you are the salt of the earth. And then also in, in verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. And so we're going to look at these two principles as, as how we can guide people. Right? Because guides have different jobs as, as you're trying to go up this mountain or if you go hunting in Africa or somewhere, you hire a guide to tell you that they're not just there to get you to where the animals are, they're there to get you alive, make, you, make sure you, you live long enough to get to go where you're trying to get to the animals or try to get to the top of the mountain. And so that's why I'm talking about guiding them and getting them down this path, right? So, so the first part of this is the salt. And so what salt does is it preserves 
It preserves things. Right? Before modern refrigeration, people use salt, they put it in the meat. It would help keep the meat longer. Right? Because salt has major, a lot of uses, right? But now we have modern refrigeration. So we just use salt as what? A seasoning. That sounds right. You put some butter down in the skillet, put the steak down there, you put the salt and pepper on top, flip it, put it down, cook it for less than 10 minutes, and you're done. Right? That's how you make a steak. Super easy. It just makes the meat taste good, but that's it because the meat is already prepared. It's preserved in our refrigerators and the truck and the process. But before that... They had to figure out a way to keep it in the desert or keep it wherever else. So the salt helps keep the meat longer without any or at least little refrigeration. Right? They would dig a root cellar or some kind of, if you're in the Middle East, they would have a cave maybe to put in where it's cooler and keep the food. All right, so here's one thing I found. It says meat spoils because it is a good place for bacteria to thrive. Bacteria need water, and there's a lot of water content in the meat, especially the muscle fiber. So this is solved by introducing salt. The salt will expel a lot of the water from the meat and creates an environment where bacteria cannot develop and multiply. Right? So without the salt or controlled environments, the meat will spoil. And so in Jesus' analogy, right, the world is the meat and the Christians, the disciples, are the salt. The world has a lot of bacteria and a lot of evil, a lot of bad things. So we are here to preserve the world just a little bit longer. Right, so Martin Lloyd-Jones says, The world left to itself is something that tends to fester. There are germs of evil, these microbes, these infective agents and organisms in the very body of humanity. And unless they are checked, they cause disease. Right, and we see the world deteriorating. Right? It just seems like you can see the rotting meat. Sorry for the, you know, it's a little bit graphic, but if you've, if you've ever left meat too long in the refrigerator or something like that and leftovers or whatever, you know it. If you open that refrigerator door, one time I had a, I left a, my, I think it fell out of my lunchbox somewhere, and I kept smelling the smell every once in a while, like, doesn't smell good, what is that, right, what, what is that smell, I couldn't find it, it took me like a week or so to find it, and finally I found it, it was, a, it was like meatloaf that I had, it had, like I said, it was the container, the container was still there, but it had fallen on my, my lunch bag or something like that, and it was just in the office. It just smelled terrible, right? We know that this happens, and so the whistle of what's going on in the world, the world is rotting. No ma- <coughs> Excuse me. No matter what people want to say, the world is rotting. It's, it's just the way it is. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> hmm. Love this time of year. <coughs> All this stuff is blooming. And so as generations go by, right, we are continually introducing the salt of Christianity into the world from keeping it completely, to keep completely spoiling. Oh, I'm good. <clears throat> Just a little dry spot. Right, but here's the thing. The salt does not become the meat, but it saves the meat, right? The world is preserved until God returns. That is what we are doing. We are preserving the world. So as Christians, we act as guides, showing how to have eternal life by following the one true God and the truth of who made the world and who controls it, right? But if we lose our way and we're not effective guides and we do not possess the ability to get the people up the mountain, then we have lost our saltiness, right? If, you, if I'm a bad guide and everybody on my expeditions get lost or fall off the mountain or get frozen or whatever, eaten by lions, 
whatever it is, I'm a bad guy. People will not hire me. I will be out of business relatively quickly. It's the same thing with the church. If we are not doing our job by doing this, what's going to happen is what Jesus talks about in verse 13. It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And so this, to make sure, in case you want to kind of get excited about certain things, about theology-wise, about losing your salvation, it's not talking about your eternal security. You are secure in Christ. Right? So we want to make sure that, just in case your brain jumps there, what it means is <clears throat> this phrase is referring to the world's response to Christians if they do not function as they should. Or right? people say, oh, that is not a useful place anymore, that is not a useful uh, seasoning anymore, the salt doesn't work anymore, so I need to find something else, right? And people are going to go to that all the time. And so believers, one commentator says, believers who fail to arrest corruption become worthless as agents of change and redemption. Christianity may make its peace with the world and avoid persecution, but it is thereby rendered impotent to fulfill its divinely ordained rule or role. It will thus ultimately be rejected even by those with whom it has sought compromise, right? And we see this a lot of times where we think we're, we're doing well in the world, we're going to make compromises, and then the world just kind of takes over, right? There's too much meat for the salt to try to preserve it. And so we, make, we need to make sure as Christians we do not give up our morals and give up our stance on, certain thi on things that are biblical or anti-biblical, depending on how you look at it. That means we need to take stands for things like it's abortion, homosexuality, things like that that are against the Bible, we need to make sure we are standing on the, the true word of God. And say, this is what the Bible says. This is what God says. I'm not really concerned with what the world says, and I'm not concerned with making the world happy. And so that's hard for us sometimes because it's uncomfortable to talk about certain things, but we know <clears throat> that you're going to be persecuted, and this is what Jesus was talking about in verse 12. But we should be glad and rejoice in this because our reward will be great in heaven because we are standing on the word of God. And we're not bending it for what the world thinks it should say. And we see this with churches going on today where, right, the Methodist church is getting ready to split because of certain things that they believe or don't believe and want to take it out of context and say, well, we think that was for them and not us. So it's okay. We can do what we want. We can interpret it how we want it because... I'm not interpreting with a proper hermeneutic, so that's the, the fancy word for interpretation. I'm, I'm using it to say, this is how I read it, this is how I feel about it, so I think this is the correct, what, you know, this is what, this is what Paul was really saying. Because I've talked to Paul by reading all the letters, or I've talked to Matthew, so I know what he was saying, really. He was just writing for that crowd and not us, right? We're, we're evolved, we're past that. And that's how you get into trouble theologically, and then functionally, because what you believe is how you live. And so it's important we make sure we know what, we're, what we believe and how we live matches up. Because the world is watching. Right? The world is watching, because right, if you ever see any news stories, if anything happens with a church person, it's always the pastor does this. Youth pastor commits this crime, right? It's just a person. It has nothing to do with the story. It's just they want to throw that, that title in there as well and say, Ha-ha, we caught you, Christians. You're just like us. Right, and so we are just like them as far as being in the world and living here, but we are supposed to be different. And so in verse 15, though, Jesus goes on to say, you are the light of the world, right? This word you is in the emphatic. So you are the light of the world. 
doesn't mean the whole world rests on you. I want to make sure we're careful, with that. we're careful how we see this. But we are here acting as the flashlights projecting the light of God. Right? I want to, that's kind of the best imagery, I think, to put in there. No one else but a disciple will be really able to tell a person about who Jesus is and what he has done in that individual's life. Right? Nobody knows what God did in your life other than you and God. And you can project that and say, this is what I saw, this is what happened to me. But also, everybody else who's not a believer is going to slant their view of Jesus according to what they think. Atheists, a lot of people will believe that Jesus, and they acknowledge that Jesus existed. They don't necessarily have a problem with that. There's too much historical evidence for that fact. But they will slant and say, well, he was just a good teacher. He really wasn't the son of God. He didn't die on the cross to take our sins. He just died on the cross just because he was a rebel. Right? He was a political rebel. They hung, they hung him on the cross. That's it. Everything else was just kind of attached to it. But we know as believers, we know that that's true, right? The people who do not believe, they are not going to go door to door to tell the story of the redemption of uh, sinners on a cross. And that's what we do. That's what we should be doing. Literally and at least figuratively. So here's what one article says about the importance of Sherpas, though, kind of going back to that. It says, without Sherpas, most climbers would not be able to get up the mountain. Without these people helping to guide them, they wouldn't become, they wouldn't go up to the mountain, right? So same thing, without disciples making other disciples, we wouldn't make other disciples. We wouldn't be able to do that without us. Now, I'm not saying that we are the key to the whole church. I want to make sure we're clear on this, but we do have a part to play. And we have a part to play because God is working with us in this case for us to bring people into. He brings us people and we teach them and grow them. All right, so Moses was kind of an earthly Sherpa, right, for the Israelites in the Exodus. He was the one kind of out front. As they were following the, the cloud or the fire of God, Moses was there to interact with them, right? He, he knew the culture, right? So Moses kind of acted as a Sherpa for them. And so for this light of the world, Right, it's a city on a hill, right? If you've ever been in the dark, you can, even around, and this, around here is a good place. If you're driving in between everything at night, you can see lights pretty far off, right? Because it's pretty dark everywhere else. And so that's what people can be guided to. I remember um, we were in North Dakota driving to Minot Air Force Base for a job we had to do, and there was nothing. It's flat. You know, it's just farm fields and nothing, just no trees, no nothing. All of a sudden... I think there's a little bit of a hill or something like that. All of a sudden, though, we saw this huge light. We could see the glow as we were kind of growing up the road, and it was this massive farm. It had all these lights. It was almost like a football stadium. There's huge lights everywhere. You're like, wow. And that was the, pretty much the only place for, like, miles and miles and miles around. It's like, I know where that guy lives. Right? And you can see it forever because it was dark in the light. That's what we were supposed to do. We were supposed to be that beacon, that lighthouse. And so Jesus obviously had in mind the bringing of illumination through the revelation of God's will for his people, right? Since Jesus is the light of the world because he's the true light, not us. I want to make sure we're, we're clear on this. So, so also his followers should, should reflect that light, right? Like lights from a city illuminating the dark countryside or a lamp inside a house providing light for all within. Christians must let their good work shine before the rest of the world so that others may praise God. Right, because what we do is kind of that light. What, they, what we do, this is where the works come into play, where what people see us do is how people see and judge the church. Fairly or not, it's kind of irrelevant, but if we are doing the right things, people are going to want to inquire 
about what's going on. Right? Or they see us hand clapping and singing along and doing the things like for the music even. Like, hey, that sounds like a good place to be. And not because it's a rock concert, but because they're singing and praising God. We're here to be happy and joyful about God. And so disciples, as disciples, we are called to guide the world, right? We have to get them down this path. But we also have a second job, and that's to teach new converts about God, right? So the second part is disciples are to teach the way to God. So that's the second point. So starting in verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, excuse me, and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what we teach about Jesus, teach others about Jesus, is important. Who he is, what his purpose was, his factual death, burial, and resurrection, right? All of these things are important that we teach and we get it right. And it's not to have arguments with people or say that I'm more right than you or whatever. Kind of our society is all like one big argument, it seems like, anymore. Because on, but on one hand, we're playing the longest game of telephone in existence, right? Our history stretches back 2,000 years, and if you really want to include the Old Testament, further back than that. And so what we have in the Bible is handed down from the people before us. Right? The apostles, the originators of the message of the New Testament, and then they had the apostolic fathers. Right? So people trained by the first apostles. And then you know, it goes through the first centuries, and they, they're working things out theologically, the things that, what things mean. You know, I think I, I mentioned people like Athanasius and people like that, right? how they have these big councils. They talk about what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God, he was not created, these things, right? He was begotten, not created. He was all forever born. He was eternal. All these things, right? What we teach is important. So we are picking up what they wrote down, and we're trying to explain it to people and explain it to ourselves even, right? Because sometimes there's things that are tricky in here. Maybe tricky is not the right word, but there are things that are complicated or need a little bit more background information that we don't have. And so we come here and we learn. We do the Bible studies and we learn because in order to teach things, we have to know it well enough to be able to teach it. Right? We have to learn to, in order to teach. But what do we teach? So Jesus straight off, he says, I came to fulfill the law, not replace it. Right? Sometimes people think that, well, everything's done, we're good, he's here, new covenant, no problem. And unless things are explicitly changed in the New Testament, like dietary laws... Because that's usually what comes up. Well, why don't you follow the dietary laws in the Old Testament? Because God said in Acts 10 and 9 that everything is now clean. You can basically eat you know, pretty much whatever. Right? So it's a God amends the law to say it's good now. And so we understand that. And so we can help people teach that. Right? So the Old Testament, though, predicts and prepares the world for the Messiah. So every Old Testament text must be viewed in light of Jesus' person and ministry and the changes introduced by the new covenant he inaugurated. Now this doesn't mean Jesus is behind every single rock in the Old Testament because there are people that want to definitely find, like, there he is, that means this, it's Jesus. It's a piece of wood. It's Jesus. It's not, it may not be Jesus. 
it's okay, right? But the story may be, right? The overall story may still point to Jesus, but that piece of wood that they're trying to point out may not be. But the Old Testament overall is pointing and preserving the world for Jesus' arrival that we celebrate as Christmas. And now we are waiting for his arrival in the second coming, right? Other things we teach, Jesus is God, right? Too many Old Testament things line up for him just to be just the guy, right? Also that he is the savior of the world, right? He is the second person of the Trinity. His death and resurrection reconciled the world and bought God's people for himself, right? He, bought, he brought us out of bondage, of slavery from sin that was caused by the fall. Right? But these different aspects of this teachings have been twisted throughout time because as we understand it as humans, some things don't make sense. How can be fully God, fully man? How, how does that work? How is he begotten in, in a human sense but not born or created? Right? How is he just always around why would he need to be born? Think, you know, there's things that like we don't get and we won't get until we get to heaven. And that we have to be okay with that. But everything else, we can help teach that, these important pieces, because that's what makes us Orthodox Christians. And so the best place to kind of go really is, is Colossians chapter 1. Uh, this probably is one of the books that has the highest Christology or the kind of the centrality of Christ is one of the, the slides I have here. Um, so if you guys turn, if you have a Bible, turn in there to Colossians chapter 1 and find starting at verse 13. And so Paul is explaining who Jesus is, kind of in a good snapshot, to teach the Colossians. And, you know, he probably wrote this to the Laodiceans. And he probably taught this everywhere he went. And he kind of talks about a sermon that he gave. My guess is this is in there in some form or fashion. <clears throat> so Paul says this to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 13. He says, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. All right, so verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. All right? Jesus, so he is, the, he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have him and his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so this is where it's important for us because this is how we come into play. In verse 21, it says, Once you were an alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions. So verse 22, which should be on the screen now. But now he, so Jesus, has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you, each of us, holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Right? We were outside, standing on the mountain, trying to frozen, and Jesus came along and said, I will take you up to the mountain. I will make you holy by my death. Right? So if people say, who is Jesus? You can easily point them to this section, these you know, eight, eight, nine verses, and say, this 
is what, who Jesus is. This is what it means. This is the majesty of him that everything is created through him and for him. And he ultimately, you know, verse 20 through 22 is kind of the, one of the keys where he made peace with God and man through his blood shed on the cross. Right? And we talked about it during Christmas. That's why we should get excited about Christmas. That's why we get excited about Easter. And it's in an everyday, this is an everyday thing. And so those are the things we should be teaching about Jesus to whoever asks. And then in Matthew 5, 20, Jesus says that if you don't, if you don't, there's going to be consequences. You will be the least of these in heaven. So you're still going to get to heaven, right? So that's the good news. So if you're a bad teacher, you mess things up, you're not getting thrown out. So that's important. That's good to know. But also we need to make sure because if you do this, if we wholly faultless and blameless, all of a sudden I have all these other expectations to do. So all of a sudden, our minds probably start racing, like, what do I have to do now? If I have to adhere to all the law, I better start reading up in Exodus and Leviticus. Okay, I can't do this, I can't do that, right? It becomes a checklist. <clears throat> and so Jesus mentions the Pharisees and the scribes precisely because they were the standard for righteousness within Judaism at the time. They were the ones that you, if you were trying to be pious, if you're trying to be perfect, you wanted to emulate, at least on the surface, of the Pharisees and the scribes. And he doesn't challenge, he doesn't make a comment necessarily one way or the other about what they're doing and why they're doing it. But he's looking at, like, look, if you're going to try to follow the law, that's everything that you need to do. You need to be more than them. You need to be more righteous than them. People must follow Jesus in discipleship, though, because this is really what he's getting at. It's not about following the law. It's about following God. And even in the Old Testament, it's always been about following God and not following the law. But for us, we supplant God with the law because the law is easier to follow than God. I have a checklist. Come to church. Check. Sing a song. Check. Don't eat shellfish. Check. Don't do this. Check. Whatever, right? All these things, I can put a big check mark every day on my to-do list and I'm happy. It makes me happy because now I think I'm being perfect. When really your life has become, your heart has become following the list instead of God, instead of the Lord. Right? We don't need to be the list checker. We need to be the Lord checker. We need to make sure we're following God all the time. Because unfortunately, the law is a list that can be followed and you can check and we can put you in the doorway and go, Good job, you got 15 out of 20 laws right this week. So let me, let me put you on there and make the, make the date and say, there you go. You know, little Johnny is this tall today with, this, with the law. It's easy, we can see it and say, cool, I'm making progress. But there's no way to do that with how big you're getting in Jesus, how much you're growing in Jesus. It's a little bit harder, it's a little bit more, uh, I don't know, gray than black and white, Right? So we need guides to make sure that we can measure our progress in Jesus. And that's where we come into play, that we can teach things to people, to the, to the new disciples. And they can, I'm not going to say take a test, but they can essentially, they can know what's what. They can, oh, I remember that one. Okay, let's move on to the next lesson kind of thing, right? And that's our job. Because becoming a disciple is not easy. And making other disciples is a long, nonstop process. We are living, we are learning from the time we are justified and saved you know, born again to the time we die. 
We're being sanctified. We're being remade in the image of God. We're dying to ourselves every single day. All the way to the end. And as we learn, we bring new people in and we teach them as well. Right? Because it's more than just following a rule set. Right? It's about giving your life over and loving God with all your soul, your strength, and your mind. Right? Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. And so wrapping it up, right? So there's an organization I found. I was looking through all this stuff last night. It's called Climbing for Christ. And so what they do is they, they're climbers, and they go over to the, you know, over to the Himalayas, so all the Nepal and all the other countries, and they, they are spreading the gospel. And they are helping to build churches and things like that, which is pretty cool. So Gary Follison, who is, a, who is the founder and president, he, kept, he keeps journals on their website, and so there's a journal entry here from, from Sunday, September 21st. I think it was 2014 is what I could find. Right? So, it's, so it says, Time for, me and, for Dave and me to fly. An evening flight out of Kathmandu to Qatar, then Philadelphia, back, you know, back to the States. So about 23 hours of scheduled flying. So I think I, hopefully, hopefully I have enough stuff in my bag over here for this. <clears throat> right. But he says, Before leaving, however, Meg and I began planning for Mission Nepal 2015. And so Meg is like a local contact for them. Which will occur in March and mark our return to Humla in the far west. We identified villages and we will revisit those. We will revisit and those we will, we will enter for the first time. We prayed thanks for all God accomplished through us for this evangelic expedition and lifted preparations for the next trip. He says, in the meantime, the mission goes on through C4C, so that's the Climbing for Christ, Members like Meg and Pastor Tej and churches we have helped build and support in Tej's orphanage in the body, or in the church, the body of Christ, throughout Nepal. We've been blessed over the years to encourage countless believers, which is part of the reason why we go to places like Nepal. And this should be, there you go. And this is what he says, he closes this part up with it. He says, we continue to pray for our brothers and sisters as they boldly expand King's kingdom, or God's kingdom, excuse me, and push back the darkness. Right, this organization who take their love of mountain climbing and everything else that they do with it, and they are going and being the light of the world in these places that is completely dark. I think I read somewhere there's millions of people in Tibet and Nepal and things like that, and there's like you know, a couple hundred Christians. So out of all the millions of people, there's only a few hundred Christians. But they are making headway here, and this is 2015 or 2014. Uh, they are planning trips to Nepal, Tibet, other countries like this year. If you go on their website, it's called, just look up Christians for, or Climbers for Christ. Right? If, you, if you're interested in it, um, to see their story and read the journals, things like that. They are out there doing things, reaching it, using what God has given them to make an impact on people's lives. They're pushing back the darkness because they are, they are the light of the world. Right? So our job as Christians is, is to preserve the world. Now, we are not saving the world, right? but we are acting as the salt crystals. We're the ones showing and lighting the way. Right? But we're not actually the ones who save anybody before we get too big for our britches. Make sure that we're like, oh, I saved five people. No, you didn't. You were telling them about God. You're telling them about Jesus. You're bringing them to Christ. But they're already saved. Jesus did it. He, his work on the cross did that. Right? But we were more like the flashlight projecting God's light down the road and bring, being a beacon, a lighthouse to people to come in. Right, we are projecting the light, the light into the darkness like moths. People will be drawn and called to the light of the world of, of, of God. So our job is to go into these places that's dark 
and shine God's light to expose the sin and more importantly to show what the holy God looks like. So we're not called to shrink away and hide, right? It's nice to go and live on a mountaintop by ourselves and people can say, well, that's where the monks live. You know, that's, that's where they live up there, but we don't go up there because we're not allowed. They say, no, it should be, that's where the church is and we, should, we can go there and tell them we want because we want to hear about God. Right, we're supposed to go into the middle of what's going on. Right, so as we go out this week, think about that. Think about, are you shining a good light? Do you need new batteries in your flashlight? Right, do you need to do these things? Who are the people you are guiding and teaching in your life about God? And you may be doing it formally or maybe even informally. Right, so as we sing our last few songs, right, think about that. Think about how we can better guide people to God this, this year. So let's stand as the band gets ready.